Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Back in the spring of 1284, the town of Hamlin in Lower Saxony, Germany, had a rat infestation. For the citizens of Hamlin, this was a serious problem, one that threatened their very lives. For these rats were everywhere. They squirmed and crawled and hid in every crevice. They were inside every alley and inn, inside people's homes. Sometimes they climbed into the sleeping residents' beds with them for warmth at night. And sometimes they used their sharp yellow teeth to bite. Perhaps even worse, the rats also used those teeth to eat the town's food supplies. Back in the 13th century, towns like Hamlin grew their own food and depended on it for survival throughout the winter. If rats were to eat and ruin the food that people had stored away, it could mean starvation and disaster. In addition to all that, the rats had a reputation for carrying disease. By the 14th century, they were considered the prime carriers of the Black Death, which ravaged all of Europe. All of which is to say is that the people of Hamlin were desperate for a solution, any solution, to rid themselves of their rat problem. When finally, on one fine spring day, the answer presented itself, in the form of a man. It was a peculiar sight, tall and slender and dressed from head to toe in the most garish outfit. He presented himself to the mayor of Hamlin, promising that he had the solution to rid the town of all the rats. This was something that was not unheard of back then either. Back in the Middle Ages, towns often employed professional rat catchers. The job of rat catcher is one that dates back centuries. It was a risky and hazardous position for most people. Some rat catchers throughout the Middle Ages employed dogs to sniff out and kill the rats. Others laid traps. And there were still other, even less cautious individuals who went in and scooped up the biting rodents with their bare hands. Since most rat catchers were paid by the number of rats they caught, there were even rumors of some less than scrupulous individuals would raise and release their own rats on an unsuspecting town, only to catch them again for a fee. 
But the rat catcher who arrived in Hamlin that spring day was particularly unusual for a number of reasons. For one thing, he was dressed in an outrageous multicolored fabric, something which was known as pied back in the day. He also promised to get rid of the rats through the most unusual means the mayor had ever heard of. This man didn't have any traps, nor any dogs, just a flute. This mysterious piper insisted to the town's mayor that he possessed special musical abilities, which allowed him to use his flute to lure all the rats away from town. The mayor was skeptical, of course, but he was also desperate. The two men haggled over a price. The amount they settled on varies from telling to telling, but by all accounts it was an exorbitant fee. After the mayor agreed, the Pied Piper picked up his flute, strolled out into the street, and began to play. Almost immediately, the rats began swarming out of their hiding places. Just a few at first, but then came dozens more, hundreds, then thousands. All of the tiny creatures came swarming toward the Pied Piper in a writhing ocean of fur and teeth. They followed the Piper as he marched his way out of town. Every single rat in town trailed after him. The Piper then led the rats down to the Vesser River, and there he marched them all into the water where they drowned. But according to the legend, as you've probably heard it before, when the Pied Piper returned to town, the mayor stubbornly refused to pay. For what reason is never made clear, whether it was out of sheer greed or the mayor's belief that this had all been some sort of trick remains lost to time. But according to legend, this caused the Pied Piper to angrily stalk his way out of town, but not before turning back and shouting a curse at the people of Hamlin. He would be back one day, he said, and on that day, they would all pay a terrible price. True to his word, late one evening on July 26th, eerie music began to echo through the streets of Hamlin. It was the Pied Piper, and he had returned to exact his revenge. Only this time the tune he played on his flute didn't bring out the rats. Instead, all the town's children came marching out of their homes as if in a trance. They gathered around the Piper just as the rats had done before, and he led them all out of town, up into the nearby hills, where they were never seen again. Now, I'm sure you've all heard the story of the Pied Piper in some form or another. You likely have even heard the common phrase that comes from the story to pay the Piper. But did you know that the story may not just be a fairy tale? Long before Hans Christian Andersen rewrote the tale to scare children, there was evidence that some elements of the tale of the Pied Piper just might be true. One of the earliest known records of the story comes to us from the very real town of Hamlin. There used to be a stained glass window in the church of Hamlin depicting the Piper's arrival that dated back to around 1300 AD, although it was destroyed in 1660. It's not the only historical record either. The Lunenburg manuscript from the mid-15th century recounts the occasion in the year 1284, when a piper clothed in many colors led 130 children out of town to their deaths. Hamlin Town records from the year 1384 mark the grim 100-year anniversary of the tragedy as well. In fact, the street where the piper supposedly marched the children out of town has a name that roughly translates to the street without drums meaning a place where no music or dancing is allowed. Something else historians have been able to piece together is that it appears the part about the rats didn't even become added to the tale until sometime around the 16th century, 
But if there really was a Pied Piper of Hamelin, then who was he? There have been many theories about what really happened in Hamelin. One theory suggests that the brightly colored piper is actually a symbol for death, and that the children are all killed by a plague, most likely the Black Death. Yet records indicate the plague was at its most severe in Europe between 1348 and 1350, more than 50 years after the events were said to have occurred in Hamelin. Other theories suggest the children were actually sent away by their parents to escape the rampant poverty of the era, or that they all went out on one of the doomed children crusades that occurred in the Middle Ages. These were massive marches of European children who went out unsanctioned by the church in an attempt to reclaim the Holy Land, never to return. There is even a suggestion that the children were part of a mass migration to colonize Eastern Europe, and that the organizers wore brightly colored outfits and played music to entertain the children along the way. Still other theories suggest that the children fell victim to one of the dancing plagues that occurred throughout Europe between the 14th to the 17th centuries, in which spontaneous flash mobs of people would take to the streets and begin dancing until they collapsed from exhaustion and even died. Perhaps the darkest theory of all is that the Pied Piper was some sort of serial killer who preyed upon the Tan's children, abducting them while they slept. Perhaps the details of these disappearances were so disturbing that this is why so few historical records exist. In any case, it does appear that something happened to Hamlin's children in the year 1284, but the details of the story have been lost to time. But this is not the only time in history where a man led a group of children to their deaths. Back in the days leading up to World War II, a group of children from South London were led by their teacher out into the German wilderness, unaware that they were headed toward disaster. I'm Nate Hale. On the way through woods to Grandma's house I go. And this is The Conspirators. The small German town of Hofstrand is situated near the Black Forest. Back in 1936, the town had just 300 inhabitants. The town itself consisted of a single inn, a church, and several farmhouses. Nothing much happened here in this sleepy little town. That is, until one windy April evening when the sound of children's desperate screams could be heard echoing down from the mountains. Right around this same time, there came a loud banging on the door of one of the farmhouses. Eugene Schweitzer was inside his home preparing to meet the weekly bread delivery when he opened the door, surprised to see two young English schoolboys standing there. The boys were dressed for warm weather in shorts, and they were wet and shivering in the heavy snow coming down around them. The boys spoke little German, save for a single broken phrase they had memorized that they managed to sputter out. Boys ill on the mountain. Help. A rescue party was quickly assembled and the story that would soon emerge became a public relations coup for Nazi Germany. The bodies of five English schoolboys were discovered half buried in the snow on the Schweinslin mountain. Several other children were found and saved, all of them nearly frozen to death from exposure. None of them were dressed properly to survive what turned out to be one of the worst blizzards the region had ever seen. But how could this have happened? Where were the adults that should have been supervising them? 
The truth about what happened would be covered up and remain nearly forgotten for more than 80 years. The morning of April 17, 1936 didn't start out feeling like a day of tragedy. It was springtime in Germany, and the lilac was in full bloom. But weather reports showed that a fierce snowstorm was brewing in the mountains and would soon sweep through the area. But news of the approaching storm didn't prevent what was about to happen. At 9 a.m., a group of 27 boys from the Strand School in Brixton, along with their popular 27-year-old German teacher, Kenneth Keist, gathered outside their hostel to begin what was supposed to be a 10-day Easter hike through the southern Black Forest. The boys ranged in age from 12 to 17. Their parents were told they would all be going on a leisurely walking tour through the tourist town of Freiburg, then through the Black Forest to the town of Totenberg, then back again. From the start, though, things seemed to be off with Kenneth Keist. He was a well-liked instructor at his school, and the students looked up to him. Just before Keist and the boys were about to leave, though, he asked two of the workers at the hostel for directions to the mountain. The two workers were both experienced hikers, and they noticed that Keist's map was not as detailed as the one he should have been carrying. This map, which had been provided by the school travel service in London, only showed major routes and did not indicate the rough terrain or the steep gradients they would have to ascend. Keist had already been warned that a snowstorm was fast approaching. In fact, a weather map for April 17th had been hung in the hostel that gave a clear indication that the group was headed into rough weather. Both hostel workers once again warned Keist of the snow, but Keist shrugged them off, saying that the English are used to sudden changes in weather. The hostel workers didn't know what else to do, so one of them drew out a path on Keist's map and told him to stick to it. Only Keist didn't listen, and soon would begin compounding one terrible mistake on top of another. Thirteen-year-old Ken Osborne, who that morning had already written his first postcard home, later wrote in his small black notebook, had breakfast, left Freiburg about nine o'clock, it was snowing, and we lost our way. Something else the hostel workers noticed as the group left for their hike. The boys were not dressed for the cold weather ahead of them. They wore shorts, Macintoshes, and sandals, and they didn't bring any water with them. Even in good weather, the 21-mile hike across the Scheunzland Mountain would have been a challenge for even the most seasoned of hikers. But Keist ignored all warnings and carried on, leading this pack of children onward with him. One thing that has never been made clear is why Kenneth Keist kept making so many bad decisions throughout his ill-fated trip. At the bottom of his travel itinerary, the travel agency had written some notes outlining the ways Keist could shorten his journey by half, doing so by either using a tram to the bottom of the mountain, or by using the newly installed cable car that went up the mountain, or both. But Keist chose to travel the entire route on foot. The group started off their hike by marching the first three kilometers next to the tramway lines leading to the end terminus at the base of the mountain. In the short time they were walking, the sleet had begun, which soon turned to full-on snow that began to stick. Along the way, they ran into two employees of the Freiburg Bus Company, who had begun shoveling the snow to clear a path for the buses. This was only 45 minutes into their hike. For reasons Keese never fully explained, he then turned north, leading the boys off the route the hostile workers had just chartered for him. They next encountered Fritz Trenkel, the landlord of the St. Valentine Inn, and his son, 
who were headed into town for supplies before they got snowed in by the oncoming storm. Keast and the boys became so lost they actually walked in a wide circle past the inn before turning back toward Freiburg, then showing up back at the inn around 11.30 a.m. By that point, there were 30 centimeters of snow on the ground. At this time, most of the children weren't especially worried yet. For the most part, they were still treating this as an adventure, throwing snowballs and shoving one another into the snow. They assumed that their teacher knew what he was doing, although a few of the boys did begin to complain about the cold. Keast was already beginning to show his frustration, snapping at the boys to stop fooling around and stay together. They were falling behind schedule. When they realized they had accidentally been walking in circles, Key stopped inside the inn and asked the owner's 28-year-old wife, Susanna Trenkel, for directions to Schoinsland Peak. Key grew even more frustrated when Susanna tried warning him once again to not go any further. The path he had chosen was the longest route possible to the mountain. And by the time they got there, the road would be completely covered in snow. Key said he would just follow the signpost leading up the mountain. Susanna told him that by the time he got there, those signs would surely be covered in snow. To which Keith snapped back that he'd just have to wipe them off before storming out in anger. That was when Susanna looked outside and realized, much to her horror, this Englishman had a group of young boys with him. The Trenkel family watched helplessly as Keith and the boys, who were wearing nothing but shorts and sandals, trudged out into the snow, disappearing into the storm. The Trenkels assumed none of them would get very far, but tragically, Keast and the children got a lot farther and deeper into the snow than they ever should have. By 2.30 p.m., the group had gotten lost yet again. The snow was getting so deep that they had to kick their way through it. Along the way, they met a pair of woodcutters who were headed home because the blizzard was becoming too fierce to work. They warned Keast once again to not go any further, but Keast would hear nothing of it. They then advised the teacher to take a path to the left of the valley. By 3 p.m., many of the younger boys had begun complaining about the cold. They were all wading through snow two feet deep. At 3.15, they met a local postman, Otto Steyert, who desperately warned Keese to not head up the mountain. He was on his way coming back down from a small mining town that sits near the base of the mountain, and he told Keese that the path ahead was becoming more treacherous by the minute. Steyert begged Keese to allow him to lead the group back to Freiburg, or to bring them to a nearby miners' hostel, where they could find beds and food. But Keese declined. Steyert could see the misery on the faces of these boys who were all shivering and covered with snow. By 4 p.m., people inside the miners' hostel could see the group struggling to follow the path along the mountainside. After making their way up the path, they then began heading through the Black Forest. They made their way through the woods and finally reached the base of Schoinsland Mountain. It was here at around 5 p.m. that the first of the boys collapsed. This was Jack Eaton, the school's 14-year-old boxing champion. Keese told the boy to buck up. He was then given an orange and a piece of cake. Then Keese had a couple of the other boys hoist him up and help support his weight as they trudged on. This was by far the most difficult part of the march yet. They were on their way up along a grueling path along the Kapler Wand, a 600-meter, 70-degree ascent. On top of that, they had now left the relative protection of the rocks and trees, and were now exposed to the full force of the blizzard. Temperatures were well below zero at that point, and darkness continued to quickly fall. 
Had the group gone just a little further east, they would have reached the safety of the summit station less than a mile away. Instead, Keast pushed them further to the west. By now, two more of the youngest boys had to be carried, as well as Jack Eaton. At least three others showed signs that they would be the next to collapse. By this point, the children had been walking for nine hours straight, through blizzard conditions. And they had done so all because they looked up to their teacher, who provided the only adult supervision on this ill-fated trip. At some point, the group finally began to fragment. Some of the younger boys simply collapsed into the snow and couldn't go any further. Things grew so desperate that 17 of the boys headed off looking for help. Keast would later claim this was all part of his well-orchestrated plan to look for help in the town of Hofsgrund. By 8.30 p.m., most of the boys were suffering from exposure to the elements. The ones who could still walk were stumbling around in the dark calling out for help. But none of them knew the way to go. That was when a sound pierced the darkness that saved them all. In the distance, they began to hear the Hofsgren church bells ringing for nighttime services. Soon after, two of the boys managed to find their way to the home of Eugene Schweitzer, just as he was waiting for his nightly bread delivery. The boys pounded on the man's door and tried to explain in broken German that there were other boys still on the mountain and that they needed help. Schweitzer quickly gathered a rescue party, pounding on the windows of his neighbors and telling them to come out. As more men emerged into the snow, they all began to hear the blood-curdling screams of children echoing in the distance. The men donned skis and headed out towards the road. Over the next two hours, the rescue party had to fan out across the mountain. The boys were scattered across a wide area. Some of the boys lay motionless and were almost completely covered in snow. The men battled the terrible blizzard conditions until they found every one of them. Unfortunately, not everyone they found survived. Stanley Lyons collapsed about ten yards from the Hofsgrind End. He may have already been dead by the point the searchers found him, but in any case, he was no longer breathing by the time they brought him inside. They dragged the boys back to town on a sledge, as many as they could carry at a time. Schweitzer, along with four other local farmers, trekked their way further up the mountain, lit only by a single carbide lamp. They eventually found Keast along with two other unconscious boys. A farmer named Hubert Whistler, who had headed out on the mountain alone after first hearing the desperate cries of the children, found three more boys suffering from exposure. The search operation continued until after 11 p.m. when every one of the members of the group were recovered. A doctor who had been on holiday nearby was summoned to attend to the most serious cases. They brushed the snow off the boys who were brought inside and wrapped them in warm blankets before being moved close to a warm fire. They were given food and coffee before being put into bed. By the end of the night, though, four of the boys were dead. These were 12-year-old Francis Bordelon, 13-year-old Peter Ellerkamp, 14-year-old Stanley Lyons, and Jack Eaton, who was just two months shy of his 15th birthday. Two more 14-year-old boys, Arthur Roberts and Roy Wyntham, were also both near to death. They were taken to the University Hospital in Freiburg the following day, Saturday, April 18th. Despite the doctor's best efforts to resuscitate him, Wyntham died, never regaining consciousness. The bodies of the dead children were carried to the cellar of the Hofsgren Village Hall and were later taken to a Freiburg chapel. The survivors would eventually be transported back to Freiburg where they received further medical attention. Many of the surviving boys didn't even realize that some of their friends were dead at that point. 
Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. After that, a media firestorm erupted. At the center of it all was the boy's schoolmaster, Kenneth Keast. Reporters swarmed the teacher, demanding answers to how things had gone so horribly wrong. Keast immediately went on the defensive and tried to repaint the narrative in his favor. The press called this horrific event the Black Forest Tragedy. Keast described himself as a hero who bravely battled the elements in order to lead his boys to safety. He said that at no point did he ever receive any sort of warnings about the dangerous weather they faced. At a certain point, he realized it was far too dangerous to turn back, so he took the risk to push on and tried to find his way to Hofsgrund. None of this made much sense in lieu of everything we know from the other people Keast encountered throughout the day. But the British press ate it up, recounting Keith's version of events practically verbatim. There was also a politically expedient reason for this narrative, too. Remember, this was 1936. Relations between Germany and Britain were growing increasingly tense, to say the least, ever since Hitler's rise to power just three years earlier. Since then, Germany had taken numerous aggressive acts in a very short time. The British had chosen to maintain a policy of appeasement to avoid provoking further tensions. Just a few days earlier, Britain had held a ceremonial funeral procession for Leopold von Hesch, the German ambassador to Britain. Von Hesch had been seen as one of the last best hopes to maintain peace between Britain and Germany. His coffin was draped in a swastika and carried in a procession throughout London, accompanied by British soldiers and onlookers who gave him the Nazi salute. In Germany, it was quickly realized they could turn the Black Forest tragedy into an opportunity to promote the Nazi regime. Baldur von Schirach, the head of the Hitler Youth, telegraphed Britain's ambassador to Germany expressing his deepest sympathies and informing him that a wreath from the German youth would be placed on each of the boys' coffins. In addition, members of the Hitler Youth would stand vigil over their bodies until they could be returned home to England. German and British newspapers carried front-page photos of the uniformed Hitler Youth members standing guard over the coffins in Freiburg's main cemetery. Thousands of Freiburg citizens turned out to pay their respects. Kenneth Keast, seven of the older boys, and some British diplomats all turned out for the ceremony. Friedhelm Kemper, a local Hitler Youth leader, gave a speech talking about the need for peace and understanding between the people of Germany and England. Meanwhile, 15 of the younger boys had been left in the care of some older Hitler youth members who played a well-publicized game of football with them, then took them on a bus tour of the city. The following Monday was Adolf Hitler's birthday. This presented another opportunity for yet another parade. 
The procession of local dignitaries, Hitler Youth members, as well as members of the female equivalent, the Union of German Girls, turned out at the Freiburg train station as the coffins were loaded onto a train. The surviving boys were also loaded onto the train, accompanied by several more members of the Hitler Youth. By that point, the story had become so muddled that the Hitler Youth were now taking credit for the boys' rescue. The Hitler Youth's own newspaper printed articles praising the group for saving the English schoolchildren. The Reich's Youth Press Service issued a press release stating that the boys had fallen in battle in order to ensure friendship between the nations. The Lord Mayor of Freiburg, Franz Kerber, wrote a letter to the father of one of the dead boys in which he said that his son had been sacrificed in order to maintain peace and understanding between our two great nations. At the time, Freiburg was not considered a Nazi stronghold, but they went along with the current narrative in order to prevent damage to their popular tourist industry. Thousands of Germans lined the 330 miles of train tracks leading from Frankfurt to the Belgian border in order to pay their respects. Many of them threw sweets to the English boys who leaned out the windows of the train cars to catch them. Several of the English parents wrote letters to Hitler himself, thanking him for the hospitality, as well as the fact the German state railways waived the 60-pound fee each family normally would have been charged for carrying the children's coffins. The families were waiting anxiously at Victoria Station on April 21st for the boys to return. The following day, a special railway van had been adapted to resemble a chapel as it waited to receive the bodies of the dead. The deceased boys arrived in coffins made of black forest timber, from the very woods in which they perished, as one reporter pointed out. Thousands of people turned out to pay their respects, so many in fact that extra police had to be called in to control the crowds. The grieving parents were allowed inside the van to see the coffins containing their children. Each of these coffins was draped with a Union Jack. The platform itself was carpeted with floral tributes including wreaths from Adolf Hitler to the British ambassador. Keist remained in Germany for several more days as an honored guest of the Hitler Youth. A photograph appeared of him in the newspaper out for a drive through Freiburg, with the local leader of the Hitler Youth and a representative of the Gestapo, the Nazi state police. Keist wrote a letter expressing his gratitude to the people of Hofsgren for their valiant efforts to save them. After Keist returned to London, he did everything he could to duck the swarm of reporters. He was dating a fellow teacher named Mary Beaumont Med. On April 24th, he wrote her a letter in which he told her he was having trouble sleeping, and he thanked her for helping restore some sense of sanity in his life. He ended this letter by saying, And after I lay down last night, I could not help saying that in spite of everything, I had had the happiest day of my life. This was written one week after five boys died in his care. The boys were laid to rest in their hometown cemeteries, and it seemed like the British people were ready to move on from this tragedy. But not everyone, though. Jack Eaton was the father of one of the boys who died. His son was named after him. Jack Eaton Sr. ran a successful construction business in South London. The day after the disaster, Eaton was already on his way to Freiburg demanding answers. There, he began to interview the rescuers and other witnesses. Everyone he spoke to told a very different story than the one that appeared in the British and German press. The witnesses told Eaton they had all warned the party to turn back multiple times. Eaton even got his hands on the woefully inadequate map that Keist had used to navigate, which was now in the possession of Freiburg's public prosecutor. 
Eaton swore he wouldn't rest until the truth came out and the authorities launched a public inquiry into the disaster. He wrote a scathing 10-page report titled The Black Forest Tragedy, The Truth, which he sent to several newspapers, politicians, and every family involved. He was determined to fight with everything he had in order to reveal the truth about how his son really died. Eaton's report noted that were it not for the ringing of the church bells in Hofsgrund, that the entire group would likely have perished on the mountain. He also wrote that Keist was completely unfit to lead a group of 27 boys from the school to Clapham Common, let alone on such a journey to a foreign country. Eaton said that despite Keist being a German teacher, it probably was his open dislike for Germans that led him to feel it would have been degrading for him to accept a German's word of advice. About a month after the tragedy, discussions began about erecting a memorial to the events of April 17th. Much was said about who would actually build such a monument and about what scale it should take. Eventually, von Schirach, the head of the local Hitler Youth, commissioned a well-known art professor named Hermann Alker to come up with a grand and ambitious monument. In the summer of 1938, a towering gateway was erected that was held up by two huge upright slabs of black forest granite inscribed with the names of the boys. A third massive stone linking them across the top was adorned by a Nazi eagle and swastika. It stood on the mountainside, overlooking the village of Hofsgrund. Plans were made, then quickly scrapped for an inauguration ceremony on October 12th. Members of the British royal family and other British ambassadors were set to appear. But tensions between Germany and Britain were rapidly escalating. In September of 1938, the Munich Agreement was signed, giving Hitler control of the Sudetenland. After Britain declared war on Germany in 1938, there were several calls to tear down the monument, but that never happened either. On the first anniversary of his son's death, Jack Eaton commissioned his own smaller memorial to his son. This was a simple gray-black forest granite cross resembling a gravestone. It was paid for by the villagers and was unveiled by Eaton in 1937 in the presence of many of the locals. It rests on the very same hillside where Jack Eaton and two other boys died. It stood about 500 meters away from the larger Hitler Youth Monument, which dwarfed it by comparison. Jack Eaton had wanted the cross to bear the inscription. Their teacher failed them in the hour of trial, but the German authorities forbade it. Correspondence between the British Foreign Office in London and authorities in Germany show how little interest there was in escalating tensions between the two countries. So by and large, both Jack Eaton and Freiburg's public prosecutors who were demanding Kenneth Keist be prosecuted were largely ignored. Keist was questioned by the Freiburg state prosecutor on April 20th, but the schoolmaster simply stuck to his story that this was all just an unavoidable tragedy and that he had received no warnings about the snowstorm. On April 27th, Robert Smallbones, the British Consulate General in Frankfurt, wrote to the Foreign Office expressing some misgivings about Keist's conduct. He also suggested that any future British school field trips should be conducted with the assistance of the Hitler Youth. Yet even these weak suggestions were ignored by the Foreign Office. One further moment of controversy occurred when a French radio station blamed the German government for the disaster. In order to prevent further reports from poking the hornet's nest, the Foreign Office quickly clamped down on any future news reports about the Black Forest tragedy. They issued a statement from the people of London expressing their gratitude to the people of Hofsgren. They also said that, in these circumstances, no great importance, if any, should be attached to the present allegations against Mr. Keyes. And after that, 
the case was effectively closed. Jack Eaton was the only one left demanding action be taken against Kenneth Keast. But any further inquiry would have caused trouble not only for the British government, but also for the Strand School over how poorly planned the trip was. In May 1936, Eaton stood up at an education committee meeting and shouted at Keast and the Strand School's headmaster, Leonard Daw. Damn you, he said, and a thousand times damn the pair of you cowards that you are sheltering. The education committee ultimately concluded that any charge of impropriety against Keast should be withdrawn. It only offered some vague recommendations that any future trips be more carefully reviewed. Although it seems like Keast got off easy, Jack Eaton would continue to hound him for the rest of his life. Although publicly the Strand School refused to admit any wrongdoing on Keast's part, behind closed doors they gave him a stern warning about his actions. Keast had planned a school skiing trip to Austria that was abruptly cancelled, following threats to the school by Eaton. Keast was then forced to write to all the parents of the children who were said to accompany him and inform them the trip was off. Keast later wrote to his girlfriend Mary Beaumont Med about how distraught he was feeling over the way the school had clamped down on his activities, and about the way Eaton continued to hound him. Jack Eaton would go on to stalk Keast at the school, at his home, even at his parents' house. Keast wrote that he was so frustrated by Eaton that he was on the verge of filing criminal charges of harassment against the man. He even wrote, If I should be accosted by Eaton this weekend, I shall almost certainly assault him, and I believe if I murdered him, it would really be the best end to this miserable business. Jack Eaton continued to step up his campaign against Kenneth Keast. He once approached a former principal of the Strand School demanding to know why the man was daring to wear the uniform of the school that murdered his son. He wrote a postcard in red ink to his local MP demanding justice, imploring the man to help him as one war veteran to another. Outside his business, Eaton erected a plaque stating, I charge Keast with my son's death. On June 16, 1937, on what should have been his son's 16th birthday, Eaton, wearing a black armband, appeared at a police court where he was arrested after causing a scene when he began shouting profanities and demanding justice for his son who had been murdered. Eventually, the Eatons would move to a new home where they would set up a shrine to their dead son. Two years after losing Jack, the Eatons had another child, a girl they named Jacqueline. But Jack Eaton's demands for a public inquiry into his son's death never came to be. He swore he would keep on fighting until his dying breath, until he saw justice be done. But ultimately, his quest for justice destroyed his business, his marriage, and his health. He experienced a mental breakdown, and he died in a psychiatric hospital. Kenneth Keyes switched schools a couple years after the tragedy. He eventually became the headmaster of a school in Frensham Heights. All of the former schools he worked at say they have no record of him beyond his name and time he worked there. He died in 1971. Black Forest tragedy might have been entirely forgotten were it not for the work of one man. A teacher named Bernd Heimmuller was researching a book on the Hitler Youth Movement in Freiburg when he stumbled across the gigantic monument overlooking the village of Hofsgrund. As he looked further into the monument's origins, he began to realize there was much more to this tragedy than the official public record stated. As he continued to dig further, he came to realize the massive cover-up that had taken place in order to avoid a public relations fiasco in the days leading up to World War II. Since then, the teacher has gone on to give lectures and 
write about the truth of what really happened to the boys in that snow-covered mountain so long ago. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Reggie, Briscoe, and Ian for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without you. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. They're just like the full-length episodes, only elf-sized. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help us out is to subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Currently, we're on Spotify, Apple, and pretty much everywhere else throughout the podcasting multiverse. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our pet catalog of shows as well. Elsewhere, you can find us on social media. Recently, I started creating short-form videos that cover a lot of similar topics to the ones I cover here in the podcast. I have a YouTube channel I call Dark Chronicles. I also post regularly on TikTok and Instagram. If you're interested in checking out my videos, I'll put links in the show notes as well. Besides that, you can find us on Twitter, X, or whatever the heck it's called this week. You can also find us on Facebook, or you can even send us an old-fashioned email at the conspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.